Hi, I'm Debbie Georgettis. Welcome to America Can We Talk. Today I'll hit three topics. Number one, the new law, the almost new law in Virginia on late-term abortion versus the rights of caterpillars. Number two, I have in studio today Sidney Powell, author of License to Lie, to talk about the latest in the Mueller investigation, or witch hunt, whichever you want to call it. And third, a brief talk about what happens if we surrender the rule of law. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. Again, and welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We talked last week about a law that did pass the legislature and signed by the governor in the state of New York relating to late-term abortion and the elated enthusiasm that ensued in New York, lighting up some of the uh, skyscrapers pink in celebration of passing a law that essentially said late-term abortion uh, when the the, uh, the mother's health up to up until into viability date of birth you know due date abortion was okay and the way the law is written it says it is to protect it that is permissible late-term abortions are if the life or health of the mother is impacted the same trick that pro-choicers have used the longest for the longest time is when you say life or health and then you say health and then the doctor says well it's mental or physical health so a woman becoming depressed the day before her due date can say yes the doctor can say well this is a mental health problem and actually at this point it is not an abortion in any way that is normally contemplated by people it is quite simply a decision by the um, mother to allow her child to be murdered I want to talk to you about what happened in Virginia, though, since that time. The state of Virginia had a bill on the books in a committee, actually, uh, which was put forth by a legislature named Kathy Tran. We'll have a picture up here, I think, in a moment. But she is a Virginia state delegate, which is what they call their the House of Representatives equivalent. She put forth a bill to permit very late-term abortion up until, up really until delivery. In fact, the uh, exchange between her and the, um, the person asking her questions in the hearing went viral. A Republican actually videotaped the sponsor of this Virginia bill answering questions of other, by other legislators about what's permitted by this bill. The question, how late in the third trimester could a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the woman? And she said, or physical health. He said, okay, but I'm talking about mental health. I'm ta- he's talking about the kind of things where the woman decides the day before deliver the due date, or the delivery, scheduled delivery, that she is depressed or has some other reason, doesn't want to have this baby. The author of the bill, as Kathy Tran said, the question was, how late is it permissible? She said, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up into 40 weeks. And Gilbert says, okay, but to the end of the third trimester, she says, Yep, I don't think we have a limit in the bill, to which this Gilbert guy asking questions says, where it's obvious that a woman's about to give birth, that she has physical signs, she's about to give birth, you know, she's dilated, she's delivering. Would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified as having a mental health challenge? She's dilating. And 
Tran, the author of this bill, said, Mr. Chairman, that will be a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman would make. My bill would allow that. Yes. So that went viral. The bill was actually killed by the Republicans uh, in the Republican in, in that committee. But I want to talk about what that bill symbolizes and actually some of the upshot of it. First of all, Kathy Tran is doing a lot of complaining about that she's being vilified. She was just trying to stand up for women's health, just really upset that she's being vilified or painted as an unkind person, that she always, she loves children. In fact, what Kathy Tran was most known for in the Virginia legislature before this bill was that she brought her own baby to the legislature so she could nurse her baby. There's some expression like psychological expression, cognitive dissonance. I don't know what it is. But when you can fight for the right to bring your own baby to the legislature, at the same time, sponsor a bill that says if you decide the day before a delivery that you don't want to have this baby, you can get certified as having a mental health challenge, which could be as simple as depression, and that you are authorized then to tell the doctor to, it isn't perform an abortion, it's to kill your child. The governor of the state attempted, of Virginia, attempted to get in the fray and to defend this woman and ended up saying in his interview uh, with the media, he ended up saying, if a mother's in labor, so they asked her, you know, what about your, aren't you more or less supporting born, this was the question to the governor, aren't you more or less supporting born alive abortions? To which the governor said, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Obviously okay with the idea of, you know, killing a, a living child born after the mother has changed her mind. Among the many ironies about this issue, and I want to just, I do want to hit some talking points for those of you who like talking about these issues and like sharing your concerns. But one of the pieces of information, simply staggering, this lady, Kathy Tran, the same day that she submitted the bill in the legislature calling for essentially killing babies, calling for late term, day of delivery, during dilation, during delivery abortions also submitted a bill trying to protect and save the lives of caterpillars. I'm not kidding. The bill was essentially calling for the uh, uh, some particular insecticide that seems to impact caterpillars development, banning the use of that insecticide because it hurts caterpillars. I mean, and I'll tell you, if you think I'm making this up, on our website, americacanwetalk.org, you can go look at every story we talk about. I have links up there. If you go to our the main homepage, americacanwetalk.org, and across the top of the page, I think it's on a podcast, you can go a list of links. You can find these stories because this is not, uh, this is not a protection of women bill. This is a woman who wants protection to bring her baby to the legislature so she can nurse her baby wants to protect unborn caterpillars and somehow thinks a woman's right to choose extends to having a child killed as it's being delivered. The other thing I want I want to hit you give you some quick talking points on this bill. Number one, the bill did get stopped. The Q and A is really staggering. Get a hold of that, share that with your friends, because most people I think won't even believe that that was really the intent of this bill. Also, 
understand when the, the pro-choicers use life or health, they use that as a very convenient means to say they're not okaying all abortions late term, only those at risk the life or health of the mother. Well, there was a doctor, and they, well, by that they mean, as again, mental health means got upset the day before. But there was a doctor who weighed in about this, and he's been tweeting about it, and he's been criticized and really vilified by the American left, where he basically said, I have been a practicing physician for however many years it was. I have delivered at least 2,500 babies. There is no reason, no reason that any woman needs to have an abortion at, at the day of delivery, at the point of delivery when the baby's that far along. I mean, he just said there are zero reasons it's ever medically necessary. He's been vilified, but doctors are weighing in trying to, trying to kind of wake people up about it. Well, I'll just tell you my very quick talking points on this. Number one, the reason not just New York and Virginia, but other states are looking at these laws is that there's growing concern in the uh, pro-abortion world that when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes on and President Trump gets one more nominee on the Supreme Court, there's some risk that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that basically uh, legalized abortion in America. They're concerned that law, that case will be overturned and all the abortion law will go back to the various states. And they want, their, the leftists want their state laws to be as pro-abortion as possible. But even Roe versus Wade, if you didn't know this, even Roe versus Wade said, you know, a state's interest in protecting unborn child is very significant at the third term, third trimester of the abortion. Basically saying the state has a very earnest and serious interest and right to legislate relating to the protection of an unborn child in the third trimester. So what these people are saying in New York and Virginia, it was way past even what Roe versus Wade authorized. Also, there was a, um, uh, there was a, uh, just a commentary, a lot of commentary, and I'll just throw in my two cents about it. Back when abortion began being discussed, many defenders of abortion would say, look, you know, we're just talking about early semester or early trimester, cluster of cells, barely a person. But first of all, as research advanced and people began to realize more and more how early uh, and, and how a baby develops in the, in the womb and how quickly a baby develops a heartbeat and quickly a baby could be considered a life and how we have made it a shorter and shorter period of period gestation uh, when a baby can become viable, all these things have made the pro-choicers very, very nervous. They don't like the idea that Americans, people, women are waking up to the reality that an unborn child is simply a child. Their cluster of cells argument is falling apart. They're not even making the argument anymore. They're basically just saying any abortion, any time the woman wants it to have the cover of a mental health challenge, she should be allowed to have it. But I want to ask you this. We used to criticize China because they had forced abortions for women who had more than one child. We used to criticize other countries that showed a cavalier disregard for life. So let me ask you this. Could you? You're, and in fact, the New York state law did not require a doctor to permit that New York state law that passed does not require a doctor to commit the abortion, to kill this baby as it's being delivered. A nurse practitioner could do that. I'm going to ask you, could you do that? Could you be in the del delivery room, see a healthy baby being born, and because the mother said, I think I don't want this baby, could you do that? Because I don't think most Americans could even contemplate doing that. 
We live in a country where we, it's a hallmark of civilization, of advanced society, that we work very hard to protect the most vulnerable among us. And if you think that a, you know, eight and a half month, nine month developed fetus baby is not the most vulnerable among us, I don't know who you think is. So I think this whole, this, this uh, New York state law, Virginia law, I think it's six other states contemplating very similar laws. They really are an opportunity to examine ourselves as a society. How much do we really value life? How much we mean it when we say that we value the life of each person? I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. We come back after a brief break. We have Sidney Powell in the studio to talk about the Mueller investigation. Come right back. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgettis. I have in studio with me today, Sydney Powell. She's the author of License to Lie. If you've watched my show on Salem, you know I've had her on the show numerous times. I'm glad she's here again today. License to Lie, great book. You think you were meeting, reading a, a thriller. It's actually a true story of what happened inside the Department of Justice during the Enron prosecution and involving other cases. Sydney Powell is uh, here with us today to talk about the Mueller investigation. And the reason I think you should care a lot about what she thinks about it, she worked for 10 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office, various U.S. Attorney's Offices. She was the youngest uh, assistant U.S. Attorney ever appointed. She worked on three different federal district courts, a total of nine U.S. Attorneys, lead counsel in five 500 U.S. appeals, uh, head of the appellate section. She was appellate section chief of the Northern and Western District of Texas. And the reason I say all that is that there's a lot of cavalier, uneducated talk about the Mueller investigation, about what's fair, what's not, what's true, what's not. And I really want to have all of us understand what, where we sit today in the uh, end of January 2019 with this Mueller investigation having been going on since I can't remember when he was appointed. It seems like years ago. Was it? When was he appointed? By the way, he's like 2017. Um, it was May of uh, 2017. May of 2017. Okay. So first, welcome, Sydney. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's always great to be with you. Love to have you here. And you know, there's so much. This morning, I, I do read a lot about the Mueller investigation and read all sorts of commentary by lawyers and prosecutors and political types. But you know. And I want to get around to the end to talk about what happens to our system if we don't really root out what happened here. But let's just start with a simple thing most people know about, which is the dossier, the famous Russian dossier. We had testimony, there was testimony recently, Bruce Orr, who was like number four at the Department of Justice, told Congress, he had warned the Department of Justice that there was, the dossier had basically no validity. It was a campaign, a funded campaign hit piece. And they knew that, that was like in August of 2016, he warned them of that. So they still seem to have used it. So how bad is that? What does that say about how the investigation got started? Well, it says a whole lot about how the investigation began. He also told the FBI that information. 
So everyone, when they proceeded to use what they called a steel dossier, knew that it was produced by the Clinton machine and was completely fabricated, was completely biased. And it also, I think, traces back to Fusion GPS, where Mr. Orr's wife worked, and she was in on the conversations with Christopher Steele. We also need to go back and look at a decision of the FISA court that is heavily redacted, but came out in, I think, uh, sometime in 2017, that points to the FBI under Mr. Comey having given illegal access to raw NSA data to three private contractors going back as far as 2015. They were doing what was called about queries, meaning they could say, I want to know about Debbie Georgiatis and pull Don't up ask. <laughs> all, all the information they wanted about you whatsoever from the NSA database, what, e what websites you were looking at, all your email, your text messages, anything and everything they wanted to see about you and then unmask any conversations you had that they wanted to unmask. And that's what they were doing to any number of American citizens and then putting that information in the president's daily briefings. And okay. that, that's where all of this stuff started. And it wouldn't surprise me if we don't learn at some point that Nellie Orr herself had a role in creating the Steele dossier, which was then funneled back to Bruce Orr in this incredible laundry circle of information. I, that was a great summary. And you're hitting on something I was going to, I want to just dive in right now and get on that point. Most people became aware that there was something amiss, some allegation about Trump, Russia collusion, because the, the Steele dossier, the Russian dossier became public. People began to understand a little bit about it. But you're alluding to prior to that public, the public ever becoming aware that there was actually what came to the attention of, of different individuals was that people, apparently the Obama administration, we're actually using the NSA database, the NSA that spies on all of us, the NSA database to, and you're, you do a query, you know, was asking, querying it, asking about certain people. So, and, and that even private people, private entities appear to have been doing that. But is that permissible? I mean, is it, what is No, your, it's completely illegal. The FISA court decision by Rosemary Collier, this 99 pages said it was egregious Fourth Amendment violations by the FBI. And so, there's a footnote that excoriates the FBI for having done that. The, and that, that uh, Rosemary, is it Collier? Is that, yes. That, that she, is a great read. But, but And she's up, one of the ones who signed off on the FISA warrant applications too, which never should have happened. Four independent judges on the FISA court signed off on the of FISA warrants for Carter Page and others based on the Steele dossier. I have read the Steele dossier in its entirety. It is smoke tied up with bailing wire. There is not <laughs> That's a, a great description. <laughs> there's not a single firsthand allegation of wrongdoing observed by anyone against anyone in there. It is total hogwash. It is hogwash. That's my word. I love that word. I actually, I had, I uh, had another person in the FBI on my show like a year ago, and I had the the Steele dossier um, with me, and so I was kind of skimming it, and, and he was reading it off air. He said, "This is so bad." But I'm going to go back again to make our sure our listeners understand one thing: the NSA database is the database our government collects spying on people. We don't like it, but they do it. 
what kind of use is it ever supposed? What what are our legitimate uses of it, and and how egregious was the the kind of random use of it that was occurring under the Obama administration? Well, it's supposed to be used to uh, query things about foreign actors, uh, and okay. yes, people who are acting on behalf of foreign governments, or you know, it's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So it's really not supposed to be used against American citizens at all. Okay, so it appears that the uh, Obama administration or some people within that administration, Comey, appear, uh, then FBI head Comey, appears to have signed off on it. Permitting- oh, he did sign off on it. No okay. appear about it at all. He personally okay. signed off on three FISA applications stating that the information in it was verified when he's now said publicly he didn't verify didn't Jack Squat. Yeah, didn't have a clue. So you have this starting at least as early as 2015, the misuse of the NSA database, uh, the essentially using the power of the government to collect private data used by one administration to spy on or get bad information about a political opponent. Is that accurate? Exactly. Okay, so bad actors before we even get to the dossier. Bad conduct. Hillary Clinton, 2016 campaign for president. She hires Fusion GPS. They inter- She hires Pilkins Cooey, law firm who hires Fusion GPS. Yeah, $12 million worth of hiring Fusion GPS. Wow, that's Paid a by lot the of- DNC and by Obama's PAC to Perkins Coy and by Ms. Clinton. Okay, so these folks, they pay a law firm which hires Fusion GPS, which is basically a research and smear job company. You don't have to agree with that. It's my characterization. No, it's the ultimate smear machine. It's a smear machine. There you go. And that organization hired this Christopher Steele, who came up with what we now call the Russian dossier. Who was also being paid by the FBI and by Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska at the same time he was being paid by Fusion GPS and the whole Clinton machine. So there's a little bit of Russian collusion right there. Exactly. All the Russian collusion was between the DNC, Hillary Clinton, and foreign national Christopher Steele. Okay, so this dossier makes its way back. Now, again, Bruce Orr testified he'd already told the FBI and DOJ this dossier is not verified, it's not substantiated, it's just basically a campaign smear piece. And that Christopher Steele was extremely biased. Oh, yeah. Steele was one. He said several times he, I mean, he didn't know what he would do if Trump would win. He would, yeah. yeah. He w- wanted to make sure Trump was not elected. So the dossier ends up back into the hands of the Department of Justice, FBI. It's used as a basis to get FISA warrants to spy on various people. So next question is, how far, what is supposed to be the basis? What kind of evidence is supposed to be used to actually get a FISA warrant? How far afield is using a dossier what you're supposed to do? Oh, well, using this information was completely far afield. I mean, you should have to have compelling evidence that an American citizen is working on behalf of a foreign agent to even start to get a FISA application against an American citizen. And every allegation in that should have to be verified. I mean, Comey signed off on that saying that it was verified. And nothing was verified. Nothing. He's admitted that publicly now, that nothing in there was verified. He's even admitted publicly that not a single, there was not a single basis to open an investigation on Paul Manafort or uh, Page or Papadopoulos or General Flynn when they opened those investigations. That would be like saying, okay, I don't like Debbie Georgiatis because she's running this radio show, so I'm going to investigate 
investigate her and I'm going to keep agents on her and her financial records until I find something that I can prosecute her on. And I guarantee you, given all the criminal laws that exist today, they can find something. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or they will make it up. Well, we're going to get to make it up in a minute about Andrew Weissman. But I want, I was just, I love, I mean, this story has had so many, it's a tangled web. I think there are so many players involved, so many allegations, and so many twists and turns. And I get a little concerned, not well-informed people, but people who, you know, are busy in life and you occasionally made a new headline and, oh, Mueller's got some indictments going, that we don't, we might lose track of the egregious foundation, the, the entire foundation of this investigation was just a fraud. It was. It was a complete fraud it was crafted from whole cloth they made it up from the very beginning okay so here we are in 2019 i want to get to a bunch of things i want to get to lieutenant general michael flynn i just really like that guy i mean i just feel he's he was he's a good actor who got just grotesquely mistreated by the perjury trap trick that Mueller and his team does. I want to hit that briefly. We do need three hours. I, I emailed sitting before we got her. I needed three hours. I'm not even kidding. Matt, my happy producer, is smiling like he thinks I don't mean it, but no. <laughs> we got. We got. I really. I think there's so many important things to understand. So let me just turn to. So you, you got the dossier. Gave rise to FISA warrants, gave rise to spying, no basis for it to start with, no basis of real suspicion of wrongdoing by the Trump team and the Russia collusion thing. But we've marched forward. Mueller's been on task for uh, over a year, a year and a half, looking for anything. And you know, it kind of reminds me, you were uh, that kind of mission he's had. There's that expression, like Stalin's aide said one time, you know, show me the man, I'll find you the crime. Find me the man, I'll show you the crime. Exactly. It feels like that's what Mueller is. If, oh, that's say, exactly what they've been doing. Yeah. Find someone and you can get them. So nothing, to be clear before we say any more, nothing that you're aware of that Mueller has uncovered or his team has uncovered in this whole investigation has turned out to be proof that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians to win the 2016 election. Is that accurate? That's completely accurate. And if he were doing his job properly, he would have by now proved the conspiracy between Hillary Clinton, the DNC, Perkins Coy, and Fusion GPS with the Russians and Christopher Steele. That's where the criminal conspiracy was. Oh, absolutely it was. And I would think the Mueller defenders would say, well, that wasn't his job. You know, he was really Oh, hired. no, he was supposed to prosecute any crime he uncovered in the process. Exactly. The the first line, first uh, charging, I don't know what you call it, the first paragraph said, you know, Trump, Russia collusion, find it out, and any other crimes you discover in the process. And instead he created crimes in the process and is prosecuting those, quote, process crimes. Well, I'm going to turn to the, the uh, process crimes, too, and the treatment of Roger Stone in a moment. But... So Mueller had, within the bounds of the original charge he was given by Rod Rosenstein, he could have turned his investigation toward the dossier, Fusion GPS, Hillary. He could have done that legally. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so what does it mean that he didn't? What it means is, is what exactly I thought he was from the beginning. Mueller is the insurance policy that Page and Stroke talked about in their text messages in their meeting with Andrew McCabe. So the insurance policy, I was going to get to that. This is wonderful. I, I'm so glad you're here because you know this case inside <laughs> and out. The insurance policy was language used in text and yeah, text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. And the insurance policy was to cover up 
what they had been doing, this querying the NSA database, this spreading information around the insurance policy essentially meant we have a way to be sure this never becomes public. And so Mueller investigation became the insurance policy, became the cover-up of what they were doing. Is that accurate? It was to cover up everything they did to protect Hillary Clinton and everything they did to try to destroy President Trump and to continue the effort to destroy Trump. So Mueller's on board with that mission, it appears. Obviously. Obviously. Okay. I want to hit a few people that I really uh, want to be sure we cover. One is Andrew Weissman. You wrote about him. Again, we're speaking with the incredibly wonderful author of License to Lie, Sidney Powell. Great book. You should read it because among the things she talks about in here is corruption with inside the Department of Justice, the FBI, the willingness to create crimes. And we can't do a lot of detail about Andrew Weissman today, but I do want to, can you in a summary way, what did he do that was so bad in the Enron prosecution that really cause you to want to write about explain and explore explain to people what he's all about well federal prosecutors are supposed to seek justice not convictions i mean the supreme court even talks about that it's in it's chiseled in the marble on the walls of the department of justice it's something i held dear to my heart and kept taped on the wall over my telephone when i was a federal prosecutor seek justice not, not convictions and I some love that. if that means you stand in the courtroom and do a better job of representing the defendant than his own counsel does then that's what you have to do these people that i encountered on the enron task force had absolutely no regard for the rights of any defendant they pulled every prosecutorial terrorist tactics in the book they played dirty at every turn. They literally made up crimes by piecing together parts of different statutes to create a crime out of something that wasn't. They destroyed Arthur Anderson, the venerable accounting firm, and 85,000 jobs, all for nothing, only to be reversed by the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision two years later, after Anderson had just been obliterated instantly upon revelation of the indictment. The Supreme Court agreeing with what you just characterized that he, he, Weissman, orchestrated a prosecution by charging him with something that wasn't a crime, putting two statutes together which didn't go together. Right. Yes. Okay. So the Supreme Court unanimously, okay, that's interesting, go ahead. Yeah, you know, and then. they took all criminal intent out of the jury instructions to get the conviction, but the real crime against Anderson was the indictment itself because that yep. destroyed the company Surely. that represented 2,500 publicly traded companies. You can't do that when you've been indicted. So they dealt Anderson the death penalty upon indictment. And also, they made up crimes against four Merrill Lynch executives and sent them to prison for a year on the, that bogus indictment while they hid the evidence that they knew exonerated them. They had yellow highlighted that evidence before the trial. Yep. They named over 100 people as unindicted co-conspirators, which required everyone in Houston to lawyer up and take the Fifth Amendment so they wouldn't testify for any defendant. They in, required Merrill Lynch to engage in an onerous prosecution agreement that kept even Merrill employees from testifying or saying anything that contradicted the government's, quote, theory, end quote, of the case, which wasn't what the law or facts were at all, and just shut down the defendant's ability to defend themselves in any way, shape, or form. So Andrew Weissman, part of the team you described in his License to Lie book related to the Enron and the Merrill Lynch prosecutions, he and Mueller go way back. Oh, Robert yeah. Mueller. Mueller's How been protecting and promoting Weissman most of his career. 
he brought Weissman back to uh, head the be deputy director and general counsel of the FBI after Weissman destroyed Anderson and destroyed the lives of four Merrill Lynch executives and made up these crimes and did all this misconduct. And in the face of a grievance that we filed against him, that the Department of Justice wound up sweeping under the yeah. rug. Yeah. I do want to make clear something. We're going to continue on Mueller, but what you're describing, Sidney Powell, about Weissman's conduct and character, you describe it in this book. It is irrefutable when you read it. It is, it is malicious. It is a determination not to seek justice, your, your great quote, but to seek convictions. And you understand it. All the attorneys involved in the case understood it. Robert Mueller understands that about Weissman's character, but he was still okay bringing Weissman on to the current Mueller investigation into the Trump-Russia collusion. I, to me, that sc screams persecution is coming, a witch hunt. This is why he brought Weissman on. That's the only conclusion I can draw. He knows exactly who and what he is. He helped create him. He has protected and promoted him for at least two decades. They may go back further than that. But he knows exactly what Mr. Weissman is. That's why he brought him on as his lead lieutenant. Because we need a dirty tricks guy in here to make sure we get to the goal, which is not to uncover whether collusion occurred, is to find something. My, my sense about Mueller is, Early on, if maybe even from the start, he was well aware there wasn't Trump-Russia collusion. But this whole mission of destroying a political enemy, of getting all sorts of his supporters accused, indicted of something, turning his supporters against Trump, because now they're worried, and people who may be willing to speak up for Trump, you're watching what Mueller's doing to all of these people, and you're thinking, I'm just going to shut up. I mean, isn't right. that part of the, the purpose of what he's doing? Oh, exactly. Anybody that had anything to do with Hillary Clinton got immunity. And anybody who's yep. done anything with Donald Trump is either in solitary confinement or indicted or on an ankle bracelet or in prison. Okay, let's let's hit some of the characters that 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 are uh, you know on the in crosshairs of Mueller. Uh, one we mentioned just a moment ago, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. He was questioned shortly after he became in his very brief tenure as National Security Advisor about a conversation. The people who questioned him, the FBI questioned him, reported back. We think he was telling the truth. It turns out what he said was inaccurate, but they said we think he was telling the truth. But that became the basis for charging him with lying to the FBI. Is that right, or was there more to it? Uh, that's that's essentially right, I think. I'm not even sure that what he really said was inaccurate if you take it in context. Yeah. And, and another thing is, it, it cannot... <laughs> It's hard to imagine how what he said was material under the statute because they already knew the answer to the questions they were asking him. They had a transcript of the conversation about which they were asking him, and he knew they had that transcript. They completely set him up because McCabe, Andrew McCabe, the yeah. deputy director of the FBI at the time, called him and told him he was sending agents over and, and applied to him it was a training exercise of some kind. I had missed that detail. I didn't think I missed any detail in the story <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. McCabe told, I mean, he really set him up because there is some requirement if they're, you're being questioned by the FBI and you're a target for possible prosecution. This is a different, invest, a different um, 
meeting, a different investigation. You have to give, don't you have to give the person, uh, I don't give Miranda warning, but you have to warn them you are a potential target. Oh, well, they didn't do that at all. No, they led him to believe it was a training exercise and said, you know, do we need to do this formally? Usually we'd have to go through DOJ and involve White House counsel. And and, uh, General Flynn said, oh, no, of course, that's not necessary. Just come on over. Yes. So he treated them like long lost friends, that they were all on the same side. And it would be like you and I having a casual conversation talking as friends as opposed to thinking you're being interviewed as if you were under oath and having to be more precise in your language yeah i mean yeah that 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 by itself was just so egregious the the duping him into thinking it was a friendly conversation at the time and he by the way now he's with ns he's a new the national security advisor trump is the president this is supposed to be the trump administration you think you're talking to a friend to to part of the administration. Okay, next person I want to hit was Manafort. You made allusion to it, but Paul Manafort has been indicted for several things unrelated, again, to any collusion between Trump and Russia to win 2016 election, but he's been indicted. He's being held. Is he currently still in solitary confinement? Yes, he has been in solitary confinement eight months. I've got an article on the Daily Caller about that, which you can find on my website, sydneypowell.com, along with a lot of other articles. For some reason, that one has received very little attention. It should receive a lot more because solitary confinement, even according to the ACLU and the United Nations, is inhuman treatment and torture literally torture it will drive a sane person insane within 24 hours it causes hallucinations it is absolutely brutal treatment it has its place in prison control because there are some people that are either so dangerous or so out of control they simply cannot be around other people but that is certainly not paul manafort who is no flight risk and uh, 70 years old and in poor health and his health is deteriorating even more because he's in a cage for 23 hours a day. And again, I'll tell you, the man I was reading about uh, solitary confinement, it's actually a torture tactic. It is a torture tactic. It's, it's a tactic. way to get someone to go, okay, okay, I'll, what do you want to know? Just, just let me out of this. So they're doing this to Paul Manafort, who's you know just a Trump ally, who was indicted on nothing related to Trump. He's being driven insane. And this is a tactic, too, for people who might be the next victim of Mueller's questioning. They see what's happening to Manafort. They see what happened to Michael, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. It's a tactic to trap people, to coerce, to arm twist, to manipulate them. So you say, whatever it is, I'm just going to tell you because I don't want to end up like Paul Manafort. Okay, next person I want to talk about is Roger Stone. Roger Stone was also arrested. He was arrested, indicted, arrested this week, and the uh, there were stormtroopers at his home. I mean, you think I'm exaggerating stormtroopers? Oh, no. Go ahead. I heard there were even frogmen in the canal behind his house. Oh, for... Okay, so people show up with machine guns. I mean, we're talking about... SWAT gear, fully armed SWAT gear, bulletproof vests. They know he doesn't have a gun. They know he's 66 years old. Everybody of any savvy at all knows that Roger Stone is quite a character, but could not be less dangerous. So they did this to him again, and somehow, by the way, CNN just happened to be there. Oh, yeah, well, that's typical Weissman tactic also. He, in throughout the Enron trials, he sat with his arm around Mary Flood, the Houston Chronicle lead reporter, and manipulated the press for months before the Enron trials, fed him everything he wanted him to know. I mean, for years, the only information out in the press was exactly the government's theory of yep. all the Enron cases. Yep while they hid the evidence that showed everybody was innocent. 
So on the Roger Stone one, so they, they do this incredible show for the media. They show up at his house, stormtroopers. I mean, you would have thought the guy was a wanted terrorist with a home full of explosives. It was a guy who's actually been indicted for uh, answers he gave in a congressional hearing that seemed they're arguing were inconsistent or not forthcoming. Nothing again to do with Trump-Russia collusion. But Roger Stone, I don't know if he'll hold to it, but he's so far said he's not going to cooperate with Mueller. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he will cooperate in the first place. I don't think he has a blooming thing to give Mueller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if Roger Stone's known for one thing, it's substantial bloviating. <laughs> okay, well, there are those types. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is quite the character. Very colorful. <laughs> But, you know, really, the, I, I think of all these people who sit around their homes realize, well, I had some connection with someone in the Trump campaign, something in the campaign, someone in the White House. These Americans are watching these tactics by Mueller uh, against Stone, Manafort, and it just makes you feel like it's a little tiny bit like a police state mentality. Oh, it is a police state mentality. It's not a tiny bit like it. It Thank is you. a police state mentality. And I can tell you that they have interviewed people so far down the line in the Trump White House. It is unbelievable and cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. People okay. that do not and cannot afford those legal fees had to lawyer up and sit for hours talking to Mr. Mueller and his arrogant henchmen. Okay, you know what, uh, my very happy producer over there, he's trying to give me a signal like only in five minutes, but you know, I, I just ignore him. No, I don't really <laughs> want to cut my mic off. But I do want to try in the last few minutes. So right now, President Trump nominate. I, I want to get at how do we get justice? And part of what's happening in President Trump has nominated William Barr to become the new attorney general. The Democrats in the Senate want to take a break for a week. They didn't want to confirm him yet. And so I'm concerned about him, William Barr, because I know some people are saying he's pretty strong, he could be good, he could get inside, he could be the new attorney general, he could say, now that I'm here, we're investigating Uranium One, Hillary's emails, we're investigating how they weren't handled well, how we didn't do our job, we didn't do, follow the blind, you know, rule of justice, a blind, you know, justice blindfolded, we were on this, I mean, he could do a lot, but I'm not sure I trust him to do it. What's your, what's your take on him? I have heard nothing but good things about him from people that I trust, but I do still have the concern that he has been a longtime personal friend of Mueller. Their wives are in Bible study together. Okay. They've been to each other's children's weddings. I mean, they're, they're good friends, but maybe he's good at tough love. Okay, well, I had a thought about that, um, Barr and Mueller. The connections between Barr and Mueller are very concerning to me. I did a little spiel, I don't know when it was, like a month ago or whatever it was, two weeks ago, talking about this, about how, you know, we're at a really unique time in American history. We have literally had, you don't have to give my characterization, the biggest scandal in American history inside our DOJ and our FBI. Oh, it is. It's, it's the, the unprecedented politicization and weaponization of the Department of Justice. And we're at a place where... We do not now have even the majority Republican in the U.S. House to try to continue an investigation of it. That's been dropped because the Democrats took control of the House. So the only way to even think there's a potential to get after the level of corruption that occurred is to have a really strong new attorney general. And maybe we'll have to settle for him going after Comey, going after the players who concocted this whole thing and assume he just can't go after Mueller because Mueller's his buddy, and maybe it's enough to go after the myriad of bad players. And that is, I guess, my final question, since we're almost out of time, but 
We're talking about bad actors and weaponization of the Department of Justice. Are we talking about federal crimes and uh, by whom a lot? I mean, are we talking about just kind of bad, but in the range of acceptable political calculation? No, we're talking about, about major federal crimes that jeopardize the very existence of the rule of law in this country. And well, if we it? don't apply it equally to people from both political parties, we've got a serious problem. Our republic is going down the drain fast, and we are devolving into nothing but a political, politicized police state in the hands of the Democrats. I love that politicized. I'm going to steal that phrase from you. Politicized police state in the hands of Democrats. We're talking with Sydney Powell. Her website is sidneypowell.com. Great website. Links to all her recent interviews. Links to her articles. She writes for Daily Caller, other places. There are also links on my website, americacanwetalk.org, to her pieces, to her writing, to her website on the homepage, go to the very homepage and drop down a list of links. You can find all sorts of, of uh, links that you can share, tell your friends about, learn the facts. Do not get caught up in what I know will be the effort of the Democrat media mob to characterize this as a little bit of beyond the norm, politics as usual. Because if we, as Sydney says, and I agree, if we cannot bring this issue to justice, we're surrendering the sense of justice. We're, we're surrendering justice. Completely. And please watch Life, Levin, and Liberty this Saturday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. I've got the full hour with Mark Levin on this very topic. Oh, that'd be so good. Because Mark Levin, as you likely know, is also a lawyer, smart as can be, able to follow it all. Well, I wish I had more time, but somehow this guy over here is um, cutting me out. So thank you very much to Matt, my happy producer. Thank you to Real News PR and the RNCN Network. I want to urge you, if you're listening to this on Facebook, please share this show. Please share all the posts on Facebook related to this topic. If you're on Facebook, please like the Facebook page. Please do a review, left-hand column, homepage of Facebook. Do a review. I appreciate that very much. If you're watching YouTube Live, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Very, very helpful. And also, you want to email me at AmericaCanWeTalk at gmail.com. You can email me all sorts of questions, topics. People send me all sorts of things, including follow-up of stories we did last week. Love hearing from you. I love encouraging you to be part of the American political conversation. I also ask you to tune in every Monday through Thursday 3 p.m. Central Time, right here at America Can We Talk, wherever you're listening. Please tune in because I always talk truth about America, why it matters to you, because America really does matter. Talk to you next time. America Can We Talk? Truth About America. RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.